Coming up on MoneyBeat, was Tuesday's sell-off a one-off? Should we expect more volatility in the market? And what's happening to high-frequency traders? This is MoneyBeat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. This is Steve Grosser. Paul, once again, is on vacation. So I'm joined in the studio with our co-hosts, Sarah Krause, Chris Dietrich, and Ben Eisen. I think there's an easy, you know, discussion to be had here. Yesterday was, you know, the volatility, I mean, the calm that had been part of the Trump trade for, you know, since before Trump was uh, elected, all of a sudden it was broken yesterday. We had, you know, both S&P uh, and the Dow finished down uh, 1%, which is something we hadn't seen, as I said, since October. And I think it goes back all the way to September for the worst, uh, you know, day for the markets. Um is this is is this precedent something to come, or is this just really more of a one-off in the market? Well, I mean, to me, it presages something that's more. I think we're going to get more selling um, uh, by almost any measure. Right, the the rally, the S and P was up almost eleven uh, percent. Right, so we, we were stretched. We were due for some sort of a pullback. That's obvious. People have been saying that for weeks and weeks and weeks. But you saw some signs yesterday that there could be more to this. Uh, the follow through today clearly shows that the S&P is down a little bit more, but things like financials, things like small caps are, are falling again, the hardest. Um, there was an interesting trend for, for sort of nerds that watch this stuff closely. You've seen in recent weeks this, this sort of odd trend at the end of the day. It's not too odd. It seems like it's fun flows, but you'll see the, the market sort of ramp higher into the close in the last 30 minutes of the session. Yesterday, it was exactly the opposite. With about 30 minutes to go, we fell to the worst of the day. So it seems like there's some of this, some of this like buying, this sort of continual fun flow stuff that's coming in seems to be drying up a little bit. And I think that could be sort of a worrying sign for the weeks ahead. And I the would, fact that it didn't just bounce back today. It wasn't right. like, oh, yesterday was a blip and on we go. It, the fact that weakness continued into today, I think, signals that as well. And I would say it's like evidence that you never want to listen to financial journalists. Um, I, Chris and I were sitting there talking about the last hour and we were wondering if the market was actually going to break that streak of not – of finishing, you know, uh, or, you know, not finishing 1% or more down. And I was like, you know, they always get a bump in the last hour, and, you know, and we we're down right around 1% going into the last hour. So I, I was optimistic that the market would uh, keep the streak going. And I was proved dramatically wrong. You know, I, I'll, uh, I'll disagree with you guys. I know we all sit next to each other, but that doesn't mean we're on the same page here. <laughs> <laughs> we really actually are. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's um, it's an interesting sell-off just because it's been so long since we've actually had a sell-off. And, and this kind of pullback that we have is something that really seems like people have almost been rooting for. When you go this long without the market taking a dip, you, you start to lose attractive buying opportunities. There's no, there's no good entry point into stocks. And so you have a lot of people just sort of sitting there waiting for the market to pull back so that they can dive in. And then when you get that, you know, you have... Uh, you know, you have the, those dip buyers, and, and and that can really soften the blow of a market sell-off. So you feel like this is not um, a sign of a fundamental change in course so much as a needed sort of pullback that will then reverse and continue its upward march. Yeah, I mean, I think at least at least for now, um, you know, maybe maybe you get a little bit more selling. I'm hesitant to say like this is exactly what the market's going to do tomorrow. But we'll blame it all on you. If you're wrong. <laughs> but you're you're talking more in the in the next you know like coming weeks, month. right? Right, and and yeah, it's true that maybe you have some of these underlying shifts taking place in the political arena. Maybe economic data is starting to look a little worse than it did a month or two ago. But at the same time, 
you know, what's what's really changed that much that would, you know, sort of cause this the, the, this big dive to continue? Well, don't you feel like part of this is a loss in confidence of what the new president can reasonably accomplish? Do you think that any part of it is related to um, sort of lower expectations for what can get over the finish line? I mean, it's I feel like we've sort of been uh, as as journalists here we've been writing the same story for weeks that you know is the same is the trump trade ending is this here's some signs that it's reversing um and i mean maybe maybe this is the first time where we've gotten the stock market to kind of sell off like this in the last couple months but you know everything else about this so-called trump trade is has seems to have been pairing back over the last couple weeks yeah no i mean there's definitely been rising uncertainty but i think the difference between yesterday and the you know what had been leading up to it was you had this you know building, building uncertainty about the timing of the Trump policies. And a lot of this centers around repealing Obamacare. Yesterday was the first sign that, whoa, maybe this won't happen. I think the market had been somewhat optimistic, you know, that, that, that this still would happen and then they could move on. Because as you pointed out in your morning money beat, Ben, there, there is like, you know, they need to get Obamacare done to get to what the market really wants, which is tax reform. And without that, and if Obamacare, you know, gets held up longer and longer, that really calls into question a lot of the policies the market was hoping for from the administration. Now, that could all change, obviously, Thursday, if the Republicans, you know, sort of agree and it passes the House that, you know, you could see the market sort of, you know, have, you know, sort of rejoice or feel relieved about that, even if it still stands, you know, a slim chance of passing the Senate. Wow. So you're, so you're using uh, my own words against me here, setting yeah. my morning money beat. <laughs> no, I, I think that's all fair. I mean, I, it's true. It's it's um, it's tough to know when you have some some of these t- these sentiment driven markets. Uh, uh, you know, when does the sentiment reverse and and you know, does it reverse for good? I mean, it's hard for me to see that this being like the key reversal point here. Um, and and because there's because not enough has happened. Yeah. that's tangible. Yeah, I mean, we could even get we could get a deal in this yeah. in the House Republicans could reach a deal and and push uh, the health care bill forward. But even even with the fact that the health care was expected to pass the House, it wasn't really expected to pass the Senate. I mean, really nothing like 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 what's really changed here. No, it's a good point. And, and sentiment, like you said, is tricky to track. But some of the some of the simple fact is that once you get a little bit of selling, I think psychologically, it's going to prompt um, some sort of retail investors maybe to, to not immediately, but sort of be a little bit more cautious about pumping money in. For those of us that follow these things kind of closely, you've seen an uptick in positioning. If you look at things like futures, long and short futures, in things like small cap stocks, it sort of shows hedge fund type investors have been increasingly bearish in things like small cap stocks. So, I mean, it's not an immediate uh, on and off switch, I don't think. But I think the the fact that the bullet, the market is no longer bulletproof is is a psychologically kind of significant thing that we could see. And it won't be, you know, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, especially given that there's this vote. But it does seem now that the the invincibility cloak is no longer valid. And what what I do think is interesting, well, first, I'm going to say, and, and also sort of in defense of Ben's point, yesterday was a 1%, just over, I think the Dow, the S&P was down 1.24, the Dow was down 1.14. These are not big moves. Mm-hmm. I mean, by historical standard, 1% moves are fairly common. Um, 
their only comment in this, what we saw, which was, you know, this 109 trading session period where the markets grinded higher. But I also think that's interesting is the Trump trade is essentially been reversed or pulled back from. Um, you know, what has been really driving the gains on um, the last couple of weeks have been in this year have been tech stocks and not just tech stocks, but the big tech stocks, these tech companies that have built these sort of fortresses, you know, these unassailable fortresses where they're just generating more money than they can. Investors have returned to those. And that is the same thing that we saw in 2015 and 2016, where these companies, you know, performed very well because they were seen as very safe. They pay most of them paid, you know, pretty big dividends as well and generate tons of cash. And that was a trade that was that was never really uh, the narrative never really fit a Trump trade. Exactly. It's definitely been something that's that's just. You know, it's it's been going on separate and parallel to whatever's been going on in politics. I mean, I think for me, when you when you look at tech stocks like that, it sort of speaks maybe less to this idea that they're buying unassailable businesses and more maybe to the fact that people are just buying funds, buying index funds. You look at the top holdings in, in, in indexes or even active funds. It's it's you're gonna see Apple, you're yeah. gonna see Microsoft, oh, you're gonna see point. Facebook, right? I mean, so. It seems like the characteristics of the quote-unquote Trump trade were valid for maybe three, four weeks. But for three months, it's been completely different. It's yeah. been – it's just been sort of like steady flows of, of money into plain vanilla stuff that just keeps going higher. And that, I think, is what won't change immediately perhaps, but it, I think we may see less of that um, if the volatility continues. Um, I think that's a good place to stop. After the break, we're going to talk a little bit about the woes with high-frequency traders. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. Love tech? Dig gadgets? Then make tech news briefing from the Wall Street Journal a part of your day. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcast and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And now look for us on the Google Play Music app on your Android devices. Um, welcome back, everyone. We're going to talk about, I think there was an interesting story that we, you know, the WSJ did about high-frequency traders. And I think it was just a couple of years ago. Um, you know, especially with Michael Lewis's book, and we let off with that in the story. High frequency traders were getting a lot of attention. They were, <laughs> and not, I, I don't think the attention they wanted. Um, Alex uh, Osipovich in In Young Huang, um, you're the editor on In Young on the story, and Alex wrote the story. I just wanted to bring you in to sort of talk about a little bit about the woes that are facing this industry because, like, they, you know, you, I think you mentioned in the story. Revenue is down from about what? One, it's around one billion this year, down from about seven billion. Yeah, revenue in two thousand nine. 
it's a it's a hard industry to write about. It's a bit secretive. Most of the companies are private, but there are estimates out there by research firms that uh, the total revenues from U.S. equities trading was a bit over a billion last year, as opposed to seven billion uh, in two thousand nine. Uh, and now, if you look back, two thousand nine and ten were sort of the peak. Uh, for high-frequency trading. Um, and, and there have just been some transformations in the marketplace since then, including a big reduction in volatility. I mean, despite one-off days like what happened on November 9th, generally volatility is way down. There haven't been sort of protracted stretches of volatility like we had in 08, 09, and then in early 2010s with the sovereign debt crisis going on. And high-frequency traders, while they do a variety of strategies, all those strategies hinge on volatility. The volatility just creates opportunities for them. So that's been a big factor hurting their bottom lines. Yeah, no, I mean, we. I think for the last few years, one of the great stats I always would see in our articles is you talk about the VIX. And you'd always say the 10-year historical average on the VIX is around 20. And pretty much every day it was in the low teens. Um, it wasn't even close. I mean, and that's just sort of a suggestion of how placid the markets have come become the last few years, except for these bouts, as you mentioned, of volatility. What else are sort of impacting you know, high-frequency traders now? Well, at the same time as their revenues have been going down, uh, they've also faced increasing costs. The biggest thing is that in this business, a lot of it is about what they call being low latency. So executing trades very, very quickly, being very close to the exchanges. And it becomes this technological arms race which is really expensive to keep up. Uh, one of the big changes since the kind of glory days of HFT, as it were, uh, was introduction of, introduction of microwave networks, which started around 2010. And with and those, we're talking about just cutting milliseconds off. I mean, this yes. is, that's how nitty-gritty we're talking here. Yeah, you're just talking about getting data between Chicago and New York. Chicago is where the futures are traded. New York is where the cash equities are traded. Getting that data uh, transmitted in a few milliseconds less than before. When companies first started doing this, suddenly the companies that did that had a big advantage over the people who were just a little bit slower because they could see the move in the futures market and they could quickly trade against that in the cash equities market. With microwaves, they're faster, but then everybody else got microwaves and that turned out to be very expensive. And it's actually moved on since then. There are actually laser networks out there and something else called millimeter wave technology, all of which is very expensive. Uh, there are also separately the exchanges charge the high-frequency traders for market data feeds, which are these very dense feeds with a lot of information about all the trading happening. It's basically, you should think of it as the, like the, the fuel that powers the high-frequency traders' algorithms, and they need to get that directly from the exchanges at top speeds. And what the exchanges kind of figured out over the past few years is they can charge a lot of money for that. And the high-frequency traders keep having to buy it. And how much has um, a change in sort of the opacity of markets impacted their business? I mean, isn't what what changes have happened in dark pools, for example, um, that have contributed to some of the squeeze? That's another factor. Like during periods of low volatility, um, investors actually prefer to go to dark pools, mm-hmm. so or inverted exchanges. Um, so that's a trend, and that, that actually dark pools have seen more volume. Mm-hmm. What uh, one of the you know sort of questions you know we had is did the impact of like Michael Lewis's book and you know sort of the attention that they got the attention that wasn't necessarily positive has that also impacted their business in the in the last you know I guess three years? There's a broader argument that that scared off a lot of investors in general from the stock market. You yeah, know, people lost money during the tech bubble um, busting and then the financial crisis, and then now you hear about these you know, very secretive firms out there potentially, 
you know, picking off your orders. So it just makes people less inclined to just bet on the stock market in general as well. So there's that concern. What, and that also brings up the question, because you, Alex, you mentioned this 2010 sort of was the peak year. And 2010 was also the year of the flash crash. Was is is was that did that really mark the sort of top for high frequency traders? And it's been sort of a downward trend since then. Well, it, it'd be worth noting that the, the high frequency traders themselves adamantly deny having <laughs> yes. caused the flash crash. <laughs> yes, uh, but that definitely, I think it was the moment that people were like, hey, what's going on with our markets? Who are all these electronic traders out there? Wait, they have more than half the volume in the stock market? How did this happen? And the high-frequency traders up until that point had been extremely secretive, and uh, they've kind of been dragged out into the open post-Flash Boys. Uh, they've definitely uh, talked more publicly about what they're doing, uh, done more lobbying, done more advocacy, trying to tell their side of the story. Uh, but uh, I really would say it was the flash crash that like highlighted the attention to this issue, whether or not high frequency trading itself was complicit in that. And as revenues have come down, what is happening to the firms that were the sort of big players? What I know some of them have exited certain business lines. From where you sit, what are you seeing? Well, it's uh, it's kind of this process of a maturing of an industry. Really, uh, it's. It, there have been some original players in the space that have not done so well. So uh, recently, uh, there was this guy, Thomas Petterfee. He's uh, the head of Interactive Brokers, which is better known as a brokerage firm. Uh, but they, he actually started out as an early automated trader in the options markets in the 80s. Uh, he had uh, a, a market-making business uh, that basically was sort of you know reliant on speed and algorithms that uh, had been sort of in decline for years, and he pulled the plug on it a few weeks ago. Uh, and he, he's a good example of somebody who was in it early, who kind of couldn't compete with the latest uh, entrance and had to pull out. Uh, there have been other cases of acquisitions, deal making. Uh, the big news l- lately, of course, has been that Virtu, which is uh, one, uh, actually a publicly traded high frequency trading electronic trading company, bid for KCG, which is the other publicly traded mm-hmm. uh, electronic trader in the U.S. And uh, the backdrop for that is sort of this macro trend of both of them kind of being in trouble. Uh, Virtue evidently sees some assets that KCG has that it wants. And I think you'll see more of that. You'll see more deals where there are businesses that are being pulled into the bigger, more successful, more diversified HFT players. Mm-hmm. And pushing into new asset classes, right? I mean, so so where the battleground was has long been equities, um, it, now it's, it's sort of becoming more diverse, correct, for these firms trying yeah. to find inefficient markets? Yeah, I guess I should stress that. So high-frequency trading has emerged in different asset classes kind of around the same time. So there are some firms that kind of came out of cash equities. There are other firms that got, got their start in the fu- futures markets. For example, DRW in Chicago is now a global diversified giant that does a lot of different kinds of strategies. And it really kind of started out sort of in the Chicago futures markets. Uh, and there are firms that kind of specialize in options. But now what you look is when you see these big global players, uh, I'll throw out some names, so Citadel Securities, IMC is a big European uh, high-frequency trader, uh, Virtu, KCG, DRW. These are, uh, they tend to be diversified, not just in one market, but kind of have uh, fingers in a lot of pies. And that helps you weather the sort of low volatility storm that they're in, because if there's a quiet period in one market, you can, you know, hopefully make money in another one. One of the obvious questions from Flash Boys is how do the, uh, you know, IEX, which is the protagonist of that story, how much of an impact have they had on the market, um, on the high-frequency trading market, and sort of grabbing trading volumes from the, the other exchanges? 
Well, I think they changed the conversation, and you're starting to see their influence and in how um, NYSE, with the new exchange that they bought, will also have a speed bump, which is the feature of the IEX exchange, the mm-hmm. speed bump that will slow down orders being executed, um, NYSE copied it directly. So it's definitely influenced the exchanges. In terms of uh, taking market share, they're still very small. They operate more like a dark pool, um, but definitely on the exchanges. Um, I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Steve Grosser with Sarah Krause, Im Young Huang, and Alex Osipovich. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. Become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices.